It's September 12th, 2010, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of the show. As we continue our steady march to episode 100 and the audience continues to grow, I want to encourage you to continue spreading the word on the program. Whether it's a post or link on your own blog, a tweet, or writing a review in the iTunes store, or even contributing a donation to the program, any and all gestures really help this show to reach the people it's intended for. Men and women who are passionate about photography. If you've been listening to this show and it's helped in any small way to encourage your walk as a photographer, please consider doing something today to help the show. If you listen to this podcast, you likely already know my next guest, who is the host of one of the more popular podcasts around, This Week in Photography, or TWIP. Frederick Van Johnson is a photographer who has really embraced the possibilities of social networking and the internet to promote himself and his work. Along with his presentations, workshops, and the podcast, he has really helped many photographers understand not only the new trends in photography, but also how they can learn to use technology and communication to further their interest in photography. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Frederick Van Johnson. Well, Frederick, welcome to the Candid Frame, and uh, I've been, been meaning to return the favor for quite a while now, and I finally got a chance to do it. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be on here. I'm big. I'm a big fan. Okay, the first question I want to ask you is kind of off topic, but I might as well. I I, I see you as a very reasonable, intelligent man, and I really kind of want to know why you would want to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess, I guess the short answer is why not, you know, and, uh, but the, the long answer is, you know, it's, it's a new experience and I've always wanted to do something that was outrageous like that. I mean, I don't want to bungee jump or anything, but to, to skydive out of a plane, I've always wanted to do that, but I never wanted to do it with, you know, someone I didn't feel confident with and the golden Knights, and you're referring to the jump that I did in Texas a couple of weeks ago, the, the the United States Army Golden Knights. And, you know, I can't think of a better organization to throw you out of a plane and make sure you land on the ground safely than those guys. So I would have thought that you being in the Air Force would have provided you an opportunity to do that. Nope. Negative. Um, I was a combat photojournalist in the Air Force and we stayed in the planes and photographed people jumping out of planes and photographed other planes and rocket launches and that kind of thing. But we never actually jumped out of planes ourselves. So this was uh, this was my first time. Wow, wow! Must have been exciting though. Well, watching the video on your on your website, I can see that you were pretty thrilled to to be doing it and and getting down safely. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'll tell you that every fiber in your body when you're sitting on standing on the edge of that plane looking down uh, is it goes into self preservation mode. So your body your body's sort of like. Uh, go back in the plane. I want to live, you know, uh, but unfortunately or fortunately, you're strapped to someone who is going to leave the plane with you, you know. So and then that first descent when you leave the plane and gravity takes over, it's kind of like a 
it's kind of like a roller coaster without anything to hold on to. <laughs> you know, on a roller coaster, you can hold on to those little bars that hold you in the seat. Right. When you're doing this, it's like you're just falling. You know, you have no control. Gravity has you, and you're you're just heading towards terminal velocity, and that's it. So it was it was really terrifying for the first couple of seconds and then sort of you kind of understand that you're not going to die you start enjoying it and then it's over it's that pretty much that quick wow well like you said you started off in the air force as as a photojournalist is that when you began being a, a photographer or had you had an interest in photography well before you you joined the service no, you know, I I got to credit the the United States Air Force with turning me into a photographer because before I went in, I knew that I wanted to do something creative. In fact, I thought I wanted to be a programmer because I I thought that was the way to get on on the computer and get images on the computer. You know, peeking and poking you know pixels into <laughs> into a grid and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, when I went in. You know, you, you know, I went in as enlisted. So you you fill out this you know the paperwork when you're going in, and you kind of let them know what the areas that you'd like to go into. Of course, it's all based on the needs of the military. So you don't really have a say, but you can say if the if you know in the ideal circumstances, I would like to do these four things. You know, and all mine were creative, and photographer was at the top of the list. And luckily. They needed photographers when I finished basic training. So, boom, they waved a magic wand, and I was a photographer. And you were a photojournalist in, in the service. So how is that different from, say, a photojournalist who works at a, at a newspaper? So there's there's different levels. So there's in the in the military there's base level photographers where and I'm you know this is remember this is a while ago so I'm sure things have changed a little bit. But there are base level photographers that uh would do basically your sign up to a base. Um initially my first base with was in Tokyo. I was at Yokota Air Force Base in Tokyo. Um but you're on the base and you're essentially a, a military base is a small city. It's a small self-contained city. And uh you're the photographer. So you do everything from forensic photography to investigative photography to sports photography for the base newspaper sports section to portraits of generals to parties to all this stuff you have to and you have to be proficient and good at every every different discipline of photography and not only that we were shooting film back there so you have to you be responsible for your job from the from taking the order in on the phone going out and shooting it Going back to the lab, processing it, printing it, and in some cases delivering it to the client who called you in the first place. So, you know, you got you got a chance to shepherd it all the way through for all these different things. And that's a base level photographer. The the photojournalists are the guys that go out. So you you deploy and. Um, you know, essentially you'd be, depending on the mission, you might be attached to a different unit and documenting what they're doing, whether it be setting up a base somewhere or it may be aircraft stuff. You know, you, you may be tasked with shooting air-to-air -air aircraft or air-to-ground type footage or whatever. So it's uh, the comparison with a military photographer to a civilian photojournalist or, or vice versa is the uh, there's there's not a whole lot of difference in skill set other than access. So military photographers, like I had to have a, a top secret clearance so I could go different places like inside NORAD and all this stuff, um, whereas civilians could not get anywhere near that stuff. So that's the that's the main difference. And you, you mentioned that you had started off shooting with film and you were part of the transition from film to digital. Tell us about that process. What were the first cameras that you guys had the opportunity to use 
uh, in the Air Force? We were shooting with the Nikon, initially, the Nikon F3. Um, and then, you know, which is, if, I'm sure you're familiar with it, it's a tank. I mean, you could, you could, you could park your car on this thing and it would still take an image. Um, and then we graduated up to the Nikon F4s. These are, these are both film cameras. Which was the F4 was a sleek, beautiful version of the F3, which looks more like the like today's Nikon D3, D3s, D700 type body. Um, but when I when I was at uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is here, um, just about an hour north of Santa Barbara, they uh, they were still all we were all filmed down there. Uh, in fact, the graphic design lab was still doing paste up with exacto knives and that kind of stuff. You know, we had just started getting Macintosh computers, and I know I'm dating myself severely here, but we just started getting Macintosh computers, uh, and and the first digital cameras. Uh, that we, you know, that were on the market were the Nikon DCS, I think they were 420s. And essentially they were, a, if you're a Nikon person, you'll remember the Nikon N8008 or in Japan they were known as the N801. And these were film cameras and they grafted essentially a Kodak spinning hard drive onto the bottom of it in a body that sort of fit onto it, that it elongated the camera um, with some double A batteries in there to keep it, to keep it running, so that was that was our first toe in the water. The we ordered twelve, I think, of those things, and I think when we bought them, they had just come out, so they were twelve thousand five hundred dollars a piece, and they were sub, they were just around one one point something megapixels. So, wow. so that was, uh, and you could get, and with that, very nice, you could you could take maybe twenty thirty pictures with that. And your battery be dead. So that was, uh, you know, so we had to end up devising different ways to to keep the power on and all this stuff because you can't really be deployed shooting digital imagery and with a dead battery. And and then you'd have to take multiple backs and all this stuff. There were no removable, so it was it was uh, it was an interesting time. And now you you fast forward to today. And I could shoot all day on my iPhone or I could shoot all day on a point and shoot camera and get pictures that were far superior to anything that we that we cranked out of that twenty you know, twelve thousand dollar camera back then. And it's amazing because it's really not been that long ago that that first camera came out. I mean, I remember, you know, seeing it myself when it first came out and, and it's not you know, it's not fifty years ago. It's only about fifteen maybe 18 years ago at the most now. Yeah, yeah, and it, and things have progressed so fast. I mean, you know, just just from film, you know, from the from the film days and how we're seeing these these new magical cameras today that do all these in-camera processing tricks and panoramas and all this stuff inside the camera. That was literally, I mean, we had no idea that anything like that was coming. We were just concerned with how to make this image it looked like it wasn't digital. <laughs> that was that was our main goal back then with those little tiny, you know, no pixel images that we were shooting. Is how to make this image? How do we get some detail in that completely blown out highlight area there? Because yeah. there was no raw, of course. It was shooting. It was all JPEG. So uh, and we were using Photoshop version one or two. So it was we were really early in the game, but. Yeah. You know, definitely gave me some some perspective and some appreciation for what we have to work with today. Well, you you were given a unique opportunity to learn photography because you were having the opportunity to shoot practically everything. You were shooting the life of what happens in an Air Force base, which, as you mentioned, includes everything. 
Yeah. But what did you find yourself sort of gravitating to? What were the, some of the things that you really found that you that you really responded to in terms of photographing? You know, it's it, you're, you're right. You know, on a military base, there's a whole lot of things to shoot. Um, in Tokyo, of course, you know, on the base, off the base, at Vandenberg, the, the second base I was stationed at, we were shooting ICBM test launches and, you know, all it's on the beach, so we're doing beach, all this stuff. So, uh the the one thing out of all those things that I that I had the opportunity to photograph that I love and to this day I still gravitate towards is people, is shooting people you know photographing people, um, but uh, it that that capturing people capturing emotion shooting models you know that kind of thing is is what kind of gets me going you know I love I love capturing expressions of people and I was telling a friend of mine, you know he's he's a landscape photographer and he's doing uh, I think, was it Trey Ratcliffe I was talking to? It was someone. But he was talking about how he loves shooting landscapes and scenics and this sort of thing. And I was saying, yeah, I, I love that too. And I really appreciate that that imagery. But every time I am in a situation like that, like I was at Yellowstone once, and I'm like, you know what? Yellowstone is great, but wouldn't it be great if I had a model to put in that scene in front of the, <laughs> this geyser? That would be great to have a model in that scene, you know, or, or at Yosemite. It would be great to have a model right there in front of El Capitan, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just how your brain is wired, and mine is wired for for shooting people and, and, you know, I have fun retouching. And the other thing about shooting people for me is the, uh, with a landscape, you know, and, and I, I know people argue, but with a landscape, it's, it's hard to, for me to get a shot that I don't feel like someone has gotten before. You know, I know it's, you know, you can be creative, you can do different like, you know, perspectives and processing and all this stuff. But for when I'm looking at something like, say, for example, the Golden Gate Bridge up here in this area, you know, every time I go to the Golden Gate Bridge, I'm, I'm taken aback by how beautiful it is and the architecture of it. And of course, the photographer in me is like, I have to shoot this thing, you know, and then I come back with my camera. I'm like, OK, what can I do that has not been done before? And I envision this this bubble around the bridge, you know, in all directions and every dot on that bubble there was a photographer there at some point, whether it's in the air directly above it or in the ocean, you know, the bay shooting back at it over on Alcatraz, shooting back towards the bridge. There's always, you know, there's there's that that that's in the back of my mind. And then I think of it. And then, and of course, and if you get a shot that you're happy with and it looks beautiful and it's perfect, you retouch it, you, you can hang it up and people can look at it and they love it. But that bridge is never going to say hey, that's a great shot of me. Thank you. You know, whereas, <laughs> whereas, whereas shooting, if you shoot people, you shoot a model, for example, and you do a really good job on it and you're proud of it, you make a print and you hand it over to that person, they're going to cherish that thing, you know, likely for the rest of their lives, you know. So that's, uh, that's the, the jolt I get out of it. What do you think were the, what were some of the skills that you think that you learned during during your time in the Air Force, it really helps you become a better people photographer. Oh, man, there's there's this one thing that sticks out in my head. We, uh, of course, we, we get lots of training, you know, in there and in various things to be aware of, whether it's water survival or, um, I, you know, air crew training, all this stuff. But it, from, in photography, I went through this this training. We had to go through training every you know, at these certain intervals, <clears throat> I went through uh, this this one class that we had in Denver, Colorado, for the Air Force, and they uh, it was it, part of the class was to break down your barriers of approaching people, 
and it was it was a really interesting i still remember to this day it was a really interesting experience because they basically they said okay here's a here's a camera here's a 36 exposure roll of e6 or of slide film which has a very narrow latitude which means you know very very thin margin of error when you're shooting slide film you have to shoot on manual and here's a 50 millimeter lens and go out and do you have to bring back at least 12 or 13 head and shoulder shots with 50 you know so get out there and you have to do it before you know in the in the first part of the day so which of course the exercise was being able to approach people explain to them who you were have a conversation take their picture and be not be be cognizant enough of the situation or aware enough of the situation to get the image because you're shooting manual so you have to understand what you're doing and the light and all that it wasn't like get out there and get 13 snapshots it was get nice portraits of people out there on the streets of Denver, Colorado. So uh, that that one exercise, I think, beyond a lot of things that we learned, because everything else is technical and, you know, uh, gear and all this stuff, but those kind of exercise, particularly that exercise, helped me understand how you know, the camera A is your passport in a lot of ways into talking to people that you wouldn't otherwise get to talk to, um, and B, how just striking up a conversation with someone and and breaking down those barriers of you know who are you and what do you want from me and and being able to get that shot out of them and, and have them feel good about it and have you feel good uh, your your own self feel good about it that's uh, uh that that's pretty big but it, back in the service you know you were you were talking to other people in the service so that there was sort of it made it a little easier because you had sort of this umbrella in which you guys were all covered. How has that changed? How is that different than when you're out in out in the street or you're out, you know, and uh, traveling in terms of approaching people? Do you find that it's pretty much the same thing for you? Um, you mean back then or right now? Right now. Um, it is. It is pretty much the same thing. Like, you know, going back to that one, that one exercise that we did with the 50, that was uh, we were in civilian clothes. So we no one knew who we were. We were it was just some some kids on the street taking photos of different people. Um, but how that sort of translates to today is, I guess, you know, it may be an artifact of me getting older as well. I'm just I'm much more at ease with people and. Um, I'm able to approach people, especially if I have my D3 with me, you know, <laughs> people know that I'm, uh, you know, I'm actually a, a real photographer because you have an SLR, of course, a digital SLR. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just much more today approaching people to photograph them, whether it's in person, online or whatever. It's it's easier because I'm much more confident as a photographer. I know what I'm doing. Um, I know that I'm going to... Uh, unless something drastic happens, I'm probably going to get a decent shot that they'll be happy with. And I know that I'm, if, if I'm shooting them in this, it's a, you know, a pro bono kind of thing. I know that it's, it's a situation where I'm giving them something, you know, it's, it's, it's not like I'm asking them for something. Yes. I'm asking them to take their, I'm asking to be allowed to take their photo, but in the end, you know, I typically give folks, you know, either I get their email address and I'll send them a shot or whatever, but, um, in the end, I'm. I feel like I'm giving them something as well. So it just sort of makes it easier when you don't feel like you're, you're begging all the time. Yeah. Well, when you when you left the service and you transitioned to civilian life, how did you maintain um, your both professional and personal interest in photography? Because that can be a real tough transition to make after 
after eight years in the service. It was, and I, and I didn't. You know, I didn't actually. When I when I first left the military, it's funny. I had to. This was this was at the beginning of the dot com explosion. Um, uh, and when I left the service, I had to get, I had to actually have a conversation with the base commander down at Vandenberg to allow me to exit the military early. I had to get, you know, and I early was like, I need to get out two weeks early that before my, my official separation date. So it was like an act of Congress to get out. Um, and this was because I was taking a job up here in Silicon Valley that needed me to start on a certain date. And that date was earlier than my separation date. So I had to write the letter and do all this stuff. So the, uh, the base commander, he's like, you know what? I think you are being foolish for leaving the military. You should be, you know, reenlisting and, you know, there's nothing out there. Your, your life is in the military. This is after eight years, right? Your life is in the military. Um, and, so I'm going to set your separation date from the Air Force on – you will be able to separate April 1st. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he set my separation date from the United States. It's on, it's on my paperwork, my honorary discharge, you know, honorable discharge paperwork, all this stuff as April 1st, <laughs> April Fool's Day. You know? So, you know, and, and making the switch from being a photographer in the military to civilian life was – uh, you know, initially what I did was, you know, I just, I wanted, I'm in Silicon Valley. I had a, a reasonably high tech job. I'm going to do that. So I just focused strictly on that for the first several years um, while I sort of put my landing gear down into civilian world, you know, put my head down. I'm a, I'm a good corporate guy and, you know, I'll shoot on the weekends kind of thing. So that, that was, that was sort of my, my indoctrination into being a civilian was putting the camera down and looking at it on weekends. Wow. So how did you get to where you are now, where you're actively involved in the photographic industry? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, uh, that's, that's a really good question. It's been sort of like, like pinball, you know, a pinball silver ball bounces around all randomly in there and suddenly it ends up in this jackpot area. Um, it's been sort of like that. Um, I would credit most of it, if not all of it, to the This Week in Photo uh, podcast that I'm the host of, which, um, you know, at least lately has allowed me to be much more engaged in the photography community and help photographers get noticed by putting them on the show, talking about things. So, you know, it, it's given me a voice in the community. Prior to that, the the jobs that I've I've held in the that have related to photographers has also allowed me to interact with some of the world's best photographers. And that's, you know, product senior marketing manager for some of the photography products over at Apple and, you know, heading up the marketing for Lightroom at Adobe. You know, when you're doing those things, of course, the, you know, all the photographers are, you you know, you're, you're friends with everybody. So that was, uh, between those two things, I kind of had a large constituency of people that I knew that were in the industry. And then, Subsequently, doing the This Week in Photo site sort of brought it all together. So now I could say, hey, you know, Mikkel Olinda, I want you to come on This Week in Photo as a guest. And, he, you know, he knows who I am from the Adobe days. And boom, now he's a guest. So it sort of all has worked together. So how'd that start, Twip? Alex Lindsay and Scott Bourne um, started This Week in Photo. Geez, what was it like? Maybe three years ago? Maybe a little bit more. Um, I want to say about three years ago. Um, Alex and I had been talking about it, doing doing a show just sort of on and off for a while. And then I moved to L.A. And, of course, 
wasn't able to connect with him and do it. Skype, the, the whole Skype recording podcast thing had not gelled yet. You know, you could barely maintain a call back then, let alone, let alone uh, record it. So he, uh, Alex and Scott got together and said, okay, let's, let's make this thing happen. And they built it. They put this thing together from the ground up and launched it. And Scott has a, a huge radio background. So he brought that to the mix. Alex is a media monster. You know, he knows everything about anything technology. And between, and of course, Scott is a, Scott Bourne is also a, uh, uh, really crazy good photographer as well so he was able to bring that and actually legitimize the show by having a real photographer on there and then they brought on a couple of people like um ron brinkman who's now a regular on the show and steve simon as well again a real photojournalist on the show um and that's where it started and then um i was then i moved back up here and up here is san jose i moved back up here and joined adobe and I started guesting on the show, you know, as a as a regular kind of guest co-host with them. So I was like, okay, I'm back now, but I couldn't I couldn't do it. I couldn't host or I couldn't be too engaged in the show because I had a corporate job A and B, my corporate job was a product that a lot of photographers use, so which which biased me, of course, you know. So we would come out with Adobe would come out with a new release of Lightroom and you know, made everything uncomfortable because, A, on the one hand, you want to tell everybody about it. But on the other hand, you don't want to seem like a shill telling everybody about it because you have this voice. And then, you know, on the third hand, if there is a third hand, the, uh, you know, folks at Apple weren't, you know, they didn't have a presence on the show. So it wasn't really fair to them that this guy from Lightroom is has this huge voice and influence over all these photographers. And they didn't. So, you know, it's kind of made it a weird situation until... Um, Adobe had their first round of layoffs in which they cut me. So suddenly I had wings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly I had wings. And uh, ironically, at the time, um, they were they were making the shifts around of, of who's going to host and all this stuff. And, you know, Alex and Scott asked me if I'd be interested in coming over there and and taking the reins. And I did. And here we are. It's funny how those opportunities that, you know, when you get laid off, it can seem like it's a, like it can be a real dark time. And then a couple of years later, you have the perspective of that really was a, a blessing for you. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I'll tell you the just my my entire career, you know, from from the Air Force. And I mentioned before we were using Photoshop back in the beginning of time, you know, and. Yeah, we were using. I think the computers we were running it on were the Quadra 950s. If you remember those machines. Oh yeah. Yeah, and so I've I've had this affinity for Adobe as a creative since since forever, right? So, and then I'm a photographer as well at my DNA. So being able to go to a company like Adobe and be the guy in charge of their professional photography software was. You know, it was unreal. And Adobe is an amazing company just in terms of benefits and, you know, those big ivory towers and all this stuff. Right. So I'm just, you know, it was just an awesome place to be um, as a photographer. You know, there were some some negatives, of course, because it, some of the, one of the parallels or one of the analogies I drew was it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're a photographer, of course, but you're it's almost like an artist that's working in the paintbrush factory and selling paintbrushes to other artists to go out and do cool things. <laughs> so you never get to go out and do anything cool. Um, but that, you know, all that aside, it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, so when those, when the layoff happened, it was, I, I don't want to say it was crushing, but it was, it was sort of 
he kind of put me in the position of, wow, okay, you know, well, that was the one job that I kind of wanted ever. And, you know, and now I'm not doing anything with that, you know, so we're with that company. So what next? And it, it kind of put me in the mindset of um, not so much negative towards corporate, corporate America, you know, because corporations are awesome. They, you know, they're, they're designed to do good things for people, generate revenue, yada, 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 you know, all that stuff. But it shifted my mindset away from being, okay, I'm going to join this company and be with it until the end of time to more of, I'm going to join this company. If I join a company, I'm going to give them 110% and knock it out of the park with them. But I'm also going to build my personal brand, you know, and so that I'm not, you know, I have some conversations with friends of mine at Apple and they are, you know, Apple has this very clouded sort of policy in terms of, or, you know, black umbrella in terms of employees blogging or Twittering and, you know, for good reason. Um, but I, you know, I tell them when you, when you leave the company, because they've sort of neutered your social media powers there, when you leave and they hand you back your social media powers, you're not going to have a voice at all. Uh, so, and that's what I decided to do when I left Adobe was to, concentrate fully on building my personal brand and letting people know who I am and distancing my personal brand from any company so that it wasn't not that I don't want to join and be a part of a company, but I didn't want to, I don't want the, my name to be synonymous with a corporation. You know, it, it could be Frederick Van is working for this company, but I didn't want it to be like, oh, Frederick Van, yeah, he's the fill-in-the-blank guy. You know, he's the Adobe guy. Oh, he's the Apple guy. He's the, you know, and then when you're no longer the Apple guy, you're just the guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it just made sense to me to sort of build up your, build up my social media, Facebook, Twitter, blog, the podcasting, all that stuff so that now I'm a, I'm a voice. I also have a brand, you know, and if I choose to join another company, and, you know, then it becomes, yeah, I'm, I'm not only am I bringing myself and my skill sets and my marketing acumen and all that stuff with me, but I'm also bringing a, a voice, you know, because now I have a, a relatively loud voice that I can, I can message with. So what's, so what's the Frederick Van Johnson brand? What is that all encapsulating now? Um, well, right now it's it's this week in photo, which is the kind of the front of it. Um, about to launch another property. So what what I wanted to do was, you know, photography. I, I feel like I'm I have some forward momentum there. Um, on the marketing side, I have forward momentum in corporate corporate America. So you know, I've I can do that with my eyes closed. And I love that stuff. Um, but what I wanted to do was also build a non-corporate America version of the the marketing side or the internet marketing side of Frederick Van. So I'm, we're just about to launch a uh, small company called Media Bytes, which is a which is a marketing company for folks like you know basically it's marketing for people like me, like a photographer who needs to get the word out about his services or any other creative that needs to get the word out about their services. Um, they would engage uh, Media Byte services. So that's a that's that's another sort of, you know, quiver or arrow in my quiver um, with This Week in Photo sitting right next to it. And then FrederickVan.com is my personal blog, which is where I'm, I'm, I'm just about to revamp that, actually. And now that This Week in Photo has been redesigned, I'm going to kind of focus FrederickVan.com more on being a blog again and more about me ranting about different things and reviewing different pieces of, of whatever I'm playing with, whether it's photography-related or not. So... 
And that's, uh, you know, between those three presences and then, of course, all the social media things like Twitter and Facebook and all that. And uh, that's sort of my universe. From your perspective, you have an opportunity to really kind of get all views in terms of what's happening in terms of photography today. And I'm really interested to hear your perspective in terms of what you just talked about in terms of, of branding, particularly in respect to photographers getting their work out there. And this is whether you're a professional photographer or whether you're you know, an enthusiast who wants their work to be not just sold but maybe exhibited. What do you think some of the things are that people are not focusing enough on? Because everyone's, you know, by default fixated on the gear. But in terms of getting the work that they produce out into an audience, out to a to a client or a customer, what do you think are some of the things that you think are are not being focused on enough? Um, that's a great question. I think I think photographers, and of course I'm generalizing because everybody's different, but a lot of photographers that I speak to um, are not clear on who they want to be speaking to. For example, some wedding photographers that I know. You know, they'll have a really nice blog, and they'll put pictures of different shoots that they did on the blog, or you know, they'll write an article about whatever, something for another photographer, you know, a tip or technique or something like that. And so I say, okay, you're a wedding photographer. Who is your target audience? Who are you speaking to? Well, and what's your end goal? And they'll say, well, you know, I want to, I'm speaking to brides, you know, I'm trying to get more clients and I'm trying to, you know, expand my, my client list. So then why are you putting photos on your blog of different things that are, or why is the voice of your blog targeted at other photographers? You know, and they, well, yeah, I don't understand. Or they're like, I don't understand how to make that shift. And even in the tweets that a lot of photographers write, you know, they're they're not cognizant of, okay, I'm going to write this tweet because I'm speaking to um, an amateur photographer. Or I'm going to write this tweet because I know a bride's going to see it or a, client's, a client is going to see it. You know, if you're tweeting with the express purpose of getting new clients, you know, you could still, you don't have to be... Um, you know, single-minded, okay, everything I tweet is, is to drive revenue or is to drive this. But in the back of your mind, whenever you write tweets or that sort of thing, photographers need to know what, uh, what the end game is. You know, I did, a, I did a talk in Dallas after I jumped out of that plane on social media. And uh, essentially, I think the title of the talk was Avoiding Social Mediocrity. And it's on SlideShare right now, SlideShare.com, if folks want to search for it. But... Um, Basically, you did this talk on on how in order to reach an audience, you have to know who your audience is and you have to focus and talk to them. And not only do you need to know who your audience is, you need to know what your end goal is because you're, you know, it could be. And I think one of the slides I had in there, are you looking to make comrades or customers? You know, are you trying to build the world's largest Facebook following and Twitter list or are you using Twitter and Facebook to drive an email list that you will later monetize? As a you know, and or send out things to your 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 ebook on on how to build Lightroom presets. You know, so it's the the bottom line is photographers need to sort of sit back and take assessment of who they are trying to talk to and what they're trying to do, um, and of course have the you know a presence to drive people to, which is a blog or something like that. And who's who's your audience at this point? 
my audience is photographers, um, advanced amateur and amateur photographers. That's that's my, those are my peeps and who I like to talk to. That's who this week in photo is targeted at. Even though we go off into the weeds sometimes. Apologies, everybody. You know, we go off, we go off into the weeds on political tangents, and we might get too techie, and we might start talking about gear. But you know, we're just we're we are essentially just photographers talking about stuff that photographers talk about on that show. You know, it's uh. And it's fun to do, which is why the show, in a lot of ways, you know, seems kind of laid back because we are. It's just a bunch of guys that like to hang out with each other and talk about gear and photography, and that's that's the show. And the people that gravitate towards that are the people that are, you know, the advanced amateurs and amateur photographers. You know, we've got a lot of pros and, and working pros that are that are also listeners of the show, of course. Um, but the main the main thrust or the yoke of the show is the those advanced amateurs, and those are my those are my audience as well. How has your own photography changed as a result of your involvement, not only with TWIP, but with all the photographers and educators that you've had an opportunity to be with over the last couple of years? Um, I'll, I'll say <laughs> there's two answers to that. I'm shooting less because I'm too busy doing other things. <laughs> so that's the first one. Um, but my my photography has changed. My eyes are opened a lot more. For example, um, Trey Radcliffe, who's kind of hung his hat on on doing hdr photography um is a friend of mine and you know i i talked to him and he hasn't been shooting all that long he just got bitten by the photography bug and started cranking out all this great work and he understands social media inside and out and blogging and you know just built his name you know basically overnight you know if you go back five six seven eight years there's no trey radcliffe and you go today and do a google for stuck in customs of trey radcliffe and he's all over the place so um trey um has changed me from a photography my my thinking from a photography standpoint of just you know how to look at something and glom onto one particular technique and then push it forward so i, I love that about the stuff that he does uh, and then the other piece of trey and david dusheman as well is another friend of mine David Dusheman runs uh, Craft and Vision, and uh, and you know his personal site. But he, uh, they, both Trey and David are examples, I think, of next generation photographers in terms of they are very capable of and very knowledgeable about their art. They've written books. They have books that are printed and published through you know real world publishers. They're both starting to write these crazy ebooks that are selling like wildfire. They're doing talks. They're doing photo walks. Um, they have crazy social media presences with gigantic followings. So these guys are one man walking media empires by themselves, and they don't need publishers and they don't need to go beg someone to publish their book they can do it themselves if they want to they can write it and publish it and sell it and have money deposited into their account directly through ejunkie.com you know it's those kind of looking at those kind of people and the stuff that they're doing is what inspires me today into kind of seeing what's coming next in terms of these professional photographers and the folks that are monetizing their art well what do you say to people who who see that and go that's great for them but I'm a photographer. I am not a writer. You know, it, mm -hmm. it may work well for for them, but that's why I became a photographer because I'm terrible with words. Does that does that what is that what do you say to that person who feels like if if writing is not natural to them that they're going to be left behind? Is that the reality of it? No. no, I don't think so at all because we're in a multimedia era. I mean, you don't have to write. You can you I mean, people people make fortunes and get get just by just being on Flickr. Look at Rebecca, you know. She's a she's a, a, a 
highly popular flick uh, photographer who's, I don't want to call her a Flickr photographer, but she's a photographer who made her name using Flickr um, and gets, I don't know how many views, you know, thousands and thousands in the, the five, five digit numbers of thousands her image when she posts them online. She doesn't write anything. She might write captions or a short paragraph of what the image was about. But using Flickr as her medium, as her social media engine, she was able to basically become one of the most influential photographers online. You know, using that. So she's even got at, uh, I think she got a Toyota or I, I can't remember the car company. But she was able to, to sign an ad campaign by virtue of her work on Flickr. You know, and, it, you know, that kind of stuff. You don't have to be a writer. You don't have to be blogging. You don't have to be on a, you know, have a podcast. You can use whatever tool fits you best. It could be Twitter. It could be Facebook. It could be YouTube. It could be your blog, whatever. And I think the point for photographers is you have to be doing something. You know, if a, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? If you shoot images and leave them on your hard drive and no one sees them, what's the point of shooting those images? You know, so people, you know, share them with people. You have this amazing opportunity today to get your work out in front of gazillions of people and get their feedback, some good, some bad, but you can still get that feedback. Whereas if you rewind back to the days, you know, when we like at, at, at Yakota Air Force Base, when we were shooting film, you know, I'd spend when I when I first landed at the base, you know, I I was basically a mole and I would stay behind the scenes in the dark room all day. I'd be in the dark room before the sun came up and go home after the sun was down. So I'd never I'd see the sun for a while, but you'd be in there and you'd be toiling away to get the perfect print, right? You know, dodging and burning and doing all this and, you know, okay, it's perfect, you know, and you finally get that print. And then what, maybe 20, if people see it, if you're lucky, you know, and that's it. That was then today. I can go out and take photos with my iPhone or with my D700 or whatever, tweak them, make them look great, post them on Flickr, send out a tweet, and suddenly thousands of people have seen it and commented on it, you know, just like that, which makes me a better photographer because then they'll say things like, wow, Frederick, that's great, but um, have you heard of Focus? Or, you know, something something like that. But you get get feedback from the entire planet, whereas back in the day, you got feedback from a, a couple of people who would, you know, more than likely just blow smoke and say, oh, what a great shot. You're so talented, you know. Today we we uh, we have much more flexibility. Yeah, you can't be shy about putting your work out there. I mean, a lot of people are very nervous about getting rejected or getting criticism. But you know, just to put it right flatly, you have to get over that. Otherwise, mm-hmm. your work is going to be relegated to a hard drive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and I'm I'm guilty of it as well because I'm very I'm very stringent about what I put up anywhere online but i'm trying to get past that but i will post things you know and one thing i would tell folks that are that are listening um you know some of the the amateurs and advanced amateurs that are just starting to use Flickr, and and this is what i did when i first got on Flickr several years ago was i was using Flickr as a almost as a storage place so i go out and shoot and i get maybe I don't know, 30 images that I thought looked great and I would upload all of them, you know, <laughs> you know, people will look at these and they'll pick the right one and they'll tell me which one is the best, you know, which is not the right way to go in terms of uploading things online. The right way to go, I think, in my opinion, um, is to take one or two images, craft them, make them beautiful, you know, sit in Lightroom, sit in Photoshop, Aperture, whatever your, your tool of choice is, get it looking beautiful and then upload that. 
and then a couple of days later, do it again and upload another one. You know, now you have sort of this this artisanship about your images rather than let me just dump everything against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. What's been one of the best things about being involved with with the show? With uh, this week in photo, um, I'd say the geez. Being able to talk to photographers, I think, and and being able to pick up the phone and or shoot an email or have the show's producer shoot an email to people that I wouldn't ordinarily have been able to be in contact with and have conversations like this. You know, when I do interviews with them on or on the show, to be the ability to sit down and talk with some of these people that I would never have been able to talk to in a different timeline. You know, these are people that I go, you know, you go go to the go to Barnes and Noble and you look at the bookshelf of all these photographers and you look at the names and now when I go look at those names I like oh I know that guy I interviewed that guy oh that guy's cool you know it, it's 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 surreal to me to be able to be uh to talk to people and pick their brains and not only pick their brains but record it while I'm picking it and share it with everybody else so that's a that's the biggest thing that's come out of it for me yeah. well since your show uh has come out there have been a host of other podcasts that sort of have come and gone and for those i'm sure that a lot of people who are listening to this now are already familiar with the show but for somebody who's not listened what makes your show distinctly different from the host of other podcasts or interview shows that are out there uh that's a good question i don't know that it that there's anything that makes it different i mean we're this week in photo is uh, yeah you're right we've been a long t- been around a long time so I guess longevity is one of the things that's a differentiator, but the, the, in terms of the content of the show and the people that are on the show, I think it's a chemistry of the different hosts that are there that show up, you know, like I said, it's a bunch of guys that enjoy talking to each other and we all have our different areas of, of, I was going to say incompetency, but (laughs) different, different areas of competency, uh, you know, with regard to photography and we all, the, the tie that binds us all together is that we all love photography intrinsically. So, um, the show itself, I think that's transmitted through, I mean, our show is a one take show. We don't, we don't edit it unless we have a Skype dropout or something egregious happens. We record that whole thing that when you when you're into the show and you hear me say, you know, welcome to another episode of This Week in Photo all the way through to it's time to take that lens cap off at the end. That's one long take. There's no edits in there. The post-production folks put the ads at the beginning and, the you know, the closing stuff in there. But, you know, it. Essentially, it's just a bunch of people talking. And I think to differentiate, to, to contrast it against some of the other podcasts that are out there, I, I don't think, I don't even think you need to do that. Because I think podcasts, they may come and go. There's some good ones. There's some bad ones. There's ones that have been around for a while. But I think they're all different. And it's all, it's, it's, uh, it's a variety. And there, we've all got more than enough space on our, on our iPhones or our iPads or our whatever device you're listening to the show on. So it's not like it's a... It's television where you, you know, broadcast TV where you have to say, wow, okay, I'm a fan of this show. Therefore, it's in the time, same time slot as that show, so I'm, I can't watch that one. You know, um, it's not like that. It's all time shifted. So you can, you can consume as much or as little as you want. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask the photographer to suggest another photographer for our listeners to explore. It can be anyone that you've, it could be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that person be for you and why? Um, uh, wow, that's a, that's a great question. I would pick, there's two, but I'll, I'll just go with one. Uh, Greg Gorman 
Um, he's a photographer who's, I think he's up in Mendocino, California, up north of the Bay Area. But Greg Gorman is, if you Google him, you'll, you'll, you'll find out why he's the, he's, he's the guy I'm picking for this. But he is a, a portraiture, I don't want to call him a portraiture, and I don't want to call him a fashion photographer, more of a, a people fine art photographer. So he's, Greg has shot more celebrities than I even know. I mean, so he's a celebrity photographer, but he does these, he does them in this sort of artistic black and white, normally kind of noir way. That's just amazing. And he's one of those photographers that I admire to the core because he, he's one of those, those folks that are, that understand photography from the, the photonic level, you know, he's, he's an artist, at, you know, so he has the artist's eye. He knows what he wants. He can direct a crew. He can get everything done. He can pose his model and all that. But better than that, he understands fundamentally, you know, exposure, compensation, um, all that magic. And it all just works together. And you see him work. It just looks magic. You know, he's one of those photographers where it's like, okay, why is he posing that person like this? And then you later you see the image and you're like, oh, okay, that's that's cool. <laughs> you know? So I would, I would put Greg Gorman at the top of my list. Well, he's a, he's a great suggestion. I actually interviewed him last year. So for those, for those listeners, I'll be uh, providing a link to that interview so you can listen to it as soon as you finish this conversation with Frederick. Awesome. But uh, Frederick, thanks again. It was, uh, I'm, I'm really happy that we finally had a chance to have you on my show. Thank you. I mean, I've been a, I've been a fan of your show for a long time and it's an honor to be on. Thank you. Thanks for joining me again. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send me an email at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Flickr. Links to each can be found on the website. Till next time, this is Ibarian X Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.